0: Welcome to the 100th episode of Creator Talks, and I'm still your host, Christopher Calloway. I cannot believe it's already been 100 episodes since I began this podcast 15 months ago at the end of 2016. The show has changed a bit since its early beginnings. I would even say it's evolved, but it's still true to its mission. Conversations with writers, artists, colorists, letters, editors, people working in comics, both up-and-coming and living legends. And on this episode is a writer who has achieved legendary status, Peter Milligan. He is perhaps best known for his groundbreaking work on the Marvel Comics series Ecstatic. Ah, uh, but Peter has worked on so much more, and we're going to talk about his recent work, including the upcoming series The Prisoner through Titan Comics, Kid Lobotomy, which is being published by Black Crown an imprint through IDW, and Legion for Marvel Comics. From our first conversation on episode four, I follow up on his German lessons, how the life drawing class went, which included a lecture by an Egyptologist, if we can expect to see future issues of The Mummy through Hammer Horror and Titan Comics, and his other series Britannia, which is published through Valiant Entertainment. I discuss with Peter his thoughts on the Legion series on FX, the Netflix series Babylon Berlin, and we also talk about Kafka, what it means when something is Kafka esque, and his favorite work by Kafka, The Metamorphosis. Plus, my questions on rest and relaxation, and much more. Peter and I dive into our conversation right away, so let's join it in progress, here now, on Creator Talks. Last time we spoke, I was working for Word of the Nerd. How could we forget that? <laughs> working, I was contributing. I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, on the payroll or anything. But, but then I decided I'm going to do my own thing because I, uh, I just want to do the interviews and I enjoy that part the most versus just writing reviews. And, uh, and you know, if I write reviews, people say, "Hey, review this," and I'm like, "Well, if I don't like it, I don't want to say anything bad. I just don't like to do that. So I'd rather say nothing." It's really difficult.
1: Is this being recorded by the way?
0: It is, but I won't use this. No, I mean... no, I use whatever you want. Okay. I know that
1: um, when I'm at a convention and um, someone says, Can I show you my artwork? I always say yes, under the proviso that if I think there's a real problem with it, I will be honest with you. And if you're happy with that, go ahead. But I guess it's the same when someone says, Can you
0: review this? It is. You have to be expecting to get some criticism. I would want the criticism.
1: When my books are reviewed, I'd always think that when someone gives them a, a very glowing positive review. They are this person is clearly amazingly astute, clever, well read and a well rounded uh, individual. If it's a really bad individual, they're an idiot. <laughs> and actually I think I tend to kind of then if it's obviously gonna be a bad one, well what's the point? I tend not to read them.
0: The people I speak to on the show are people that I like their work and I want to interview them. And if I haven't spoken to somebody yet, it doesn't mean I don't like their work. It just means that, well, I haven't gotten to them yet or they're not available. But That's just the way I like to do it. And I think it works out better for the guest who's happy to be on the show and works out better for me who's happy to talk about it. And then people, when they listen to the show, well, they hear a good conversation. So I like to go about it that way. The last time we spoke, you were taking German lessons and you still are. So how's that going for you?
1: Yes, good. Seemed good, Duncan. Yeah, it's it's going good. It's going good. I mean, look, it's a uh, learning a language is a it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. At least it is with me, anyway. I think one has to uh, like the process, you know. And I do like the process. I like the shape of the language, like the look of it, and the grammar of it. I have a Skype lesson uh, every week, sometimes twice a week, uh, with this uh, young lady from Germany, and she's really interesting. She's a uh, Indian extraction. Her parents were born in uh, South India, and she was born in a. Uh, Germany, so she has an interesting uh, of two different uh, cultures, and so she's really an uh, interesting and pleasant person. Yeah, we go over stuff. We're reading to a Hemingway book at the moment in German, and you know we're talking about it in German, and it's it's a lot of fun, and it's almost like it's using a completely different part of your brain from the part of the brain. Hopefully, the part of the brain you use for writing stories, for coming up with ideas. When you read, you're always thinking, hmm, can I use this? The idea is that it's kind of uh, targeting certain parts of uh, this brain in my skull, which aren't lit up while
0: all the stuff. Have you put that to the test outside of class using your newly found German language skills?
1: Yes. Quite recently, my wife and I were in, uh, in Vienna. And, yeah, I could use my German there. And there were some occasions when uh, it was useful. When we were in a restaurant, and my wife just wanted a bit of something, and just that just that phrase, I'll just have a small bit, please, of cake, you know, and the idiom, just a small bit, please, kind of foxed this waiter, and I was able to come to the rescue with my um, near-perfect German. By the way, it's not near-perfect. It's a long way from near
0: well, you're trying and it's great that you're working on a new skill because as we get older we need to keep our brains sharp. You know, you just don't want to sit back and say, Well, I'm done learning. That's that's crazy. You're never done learning. At least I hope no one's ever done learning.
1: I'm not <laughs> asking for sharp. I just don't want to be totally fucked. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I hear you. I don't want to be working my way towards senility. I just want to be able to function well and, and find my glasses in the morning and all that stuff.
1: <laughs> well, I was to Gore Vidal called um, when he uh, came back from Italy to America. He said uh, he was coming back for the hospital years, <laughs> and uh, and uh, kind of uh, I don't really want the hospital years. Yeah.
0: you know, calling back to our last conversation too. I just wanted to follow up. You were going to have at the time we were talking. This was like late 2016, and you were working on the Mummy which was a Titan Hammer Horror book, and you were going to go to a drawing class in London, and an Egyptologist was going to speak there. And that was going to be a podcast. Did that ever happen?
1: I don't know about the podcast, the uh, the drawing class. It was fantastic. The two models were these women who were part of them. Jason Atomic is a guy that arranges lots of these things. You can get, see his stuff online. In fact, the photographs from the evening are online, uh, and they're fantastic these women... Uh, uh, they are professional models and they dressed up in, in different, sometimes they were mummies, sometimes they were, I don't know, the, the queen of of Memphis, em- Egypt or something, you know, and they, so they had different kind of costumes and they were just amazing, they they get into these amazing uh, postures. And just be kind of like statue still for a long time, for long enough for me to draw a really shitty drawing. But no, um, the whole evening was fantastic. Uh, they were great. I'd say Jason Atomic arranges these things, um, and there was often he does themes. Sometimes I think he had one bloody Valentine. Yeah. So anyone's interested in oil and lives in London wants to do some life drawing with an edge. Jason Atomic is a kind of guy to look up, and it was a lot of fun. The Egyptologist who came along was a. Uh, was a hoot as well, he knew his shit. And he was coming at it from a slightly more, uh, let's say, academic point of view. But he, he got the fun of it, he was a fan. I think he called himself a tame. Uh, Egyptologist. I think actually he's a classicist. Actually since then I've occasionally uh, emailed him, asked him a couple of questions about Britannia that I was writing for um, Valiant. There was a couple of uh, questions about the uh, classical world. I just wanted to kind of ask him and he's always been very kind of uh, coming forward with um,
0: answers and suggestions. Are you still doing drawing classes too? Are you still going to those life classes?
1: No. I, mean, I you have this other life. You have a number of books to read
0: and you're kind of busy
1: and then you're doing German and then there's that drinking you've got to do, you've got to put some time aside for that. Actually, actually that's a joke, actually. My drinking is now pulled back a lot. And uh, when I drink, I really enjoy it. And it's kind of a pleasure. I drink every week, but um, not every day. I'm um, so a good man. <laughs> Suddenly we lurched into Alcoholics Anonymous territory. But um, I used to have a, a real thirst for it, and I have managed to kind of uh, quench that thirst a bit.
0: That's very admirable. I have a thirst for it, too, and I do try to curtail. It depends on how much stress I'm under. <laughs> but <laughs> but with a lot of work to do and a couple of kids, it's hard to uh, find that time just to kick back and have a drink. I mean, you know, you got to be on your toes. <laughs> you got to make sure someone's not crawling into something, or, you know, you got to be alert.
1: A beer, I think a beer or a small glass of whiskey. On a Friday night, that's not going to hurt anyone.
0: Yeah, usually it's uh, bedtime and we watch something on TV. Oh, you know, speaking of German, I don't know if you've seen this yet or not, but we just finished up watching Babylon Berlin on Netflix. Did you see that?
1: I did. Oh, that was good. I really enjoyed it. I thought there were some times when the plot... But I thought they didn't quite put it all together at the end. Yeah, I just thought there were some interesting character points. I think it lost sight a bit of some of that kind of like uh, Berlin, the decadence of Berlin and what was going on in Berlin, all that stuff which they kind of highlighted uh, at the beginning of the story. I thought they just they just lost sight of it a bit and it became a bit plot heavy at the end. But um, I thought it was real fun. I thought that the characters were great. The guy who played... Gerwin is there, uh, the detective I thought it was very good. I thought Charlotte uh, is fantastic and uh, sexy as hell. Um, a really good actress. And I've actually, um, to, uh, to, um, to test my German, to, to improve my German, I've uh, checked out some interviews she and the other cast have given uh, online. There's a whole bunch of that stuff uh, online you can just check out. And it's obviously in German. It's quite a good lesson. Because one knows the context of the kind of questions that can be asked, it helps um, when you're a learner. To learn that kind of stuff. But um, I'm very interested in Berlin of that time, that kind of Weimar Republic, interwar. It's a really interesting uh, period. I read a great book actually um, about Alistair Crowley, Alistair Crowley, as you might say, in uh, in, uh, in Berlin. And that was really interesting. Some of the art that was coming out, um, Otto Dix, and some of the German expressionism that was coming out, was fantastic. Some writing was amazing. So it was a really rich and dangerous and obviously ultimately doomed uh, era. I thought Babylon Berlin had a lot going for
0: it. I don't speak German, so I had to pay attention. Like I couldn't look down and multitask. I'm like, what happened? But they say, <laughs> so I had to read the subtitles.
1: How how was it? Was it um, subtitled? Yes. I prefer that. I mean, I prefer like I think you get a, a rhythm of you get more of a sense of the drama and the emotion if you can actually hear the actors talking in their in their own uh, language. I must prefer that to a dubbed.
0: Well, that was the option to, to listen to a dub, but I said to my wife, I said, no, I'd rather hear it in the language. And she agreed because you don't get the emotion. It looks a little odd if it's dubbed and I'd rather hear it in the language and read and then follow along. And eventually you start to pick up little things here and there so you don't have to read everything. But, you know, we usually would skip the opening credits of a show because it's like, okay, we've seen it. Let's move along. But that one is fantastic. So I always watch the opening credits all the way through. What stood out for me, and I won't spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it yet, and I think it was like 14 or 15 episodes, but... It went on, yeah. It did. But like the last couple, like the last few, especially with the, I will say, just to be obtuse a bit about it, the auto accident, that scene, oh my God. It was hard. Yeah. Oh. I
1: mean, I think, I think it was fun, but I did laugh because they really stretched. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been yeah. big time. Yeah, yeah. That. But you know, I mean, that's just about okay. I think they got away with that. I thought what was fun was one of the, I guess the narrative things running through it was, uh, will these two characters get it on? They both kind of really strong characters. The Charlotte character was very curious, uh, Neugierish, as they say in German. She was a really great character. And I like the fact they didn't shy away from the fact that when she had to, she was a prostitute. That was what was happening in that time. You were having normal young women working in an office during the day, on the Friday, and turn a few tricks. They actually had a, a particular name for these uh, girls who were like Friday night prostitutes, and obviously it ain't fun, and it wasn't—it's not a laugh, and it wasn't sexy. It was horrific for them because these people were not, didn't want to do it any more than lots well, of other prostitutes wanted to do it. But these were kind of uh, people who were forced by the circumstances of a destroyed uh, economy into doing this stuff. So I like the fact they didn't shy away from the the dark and seamy
0: side of her life. No, it was very good. I brought up Titan. That's the next project you're working on is The Prisoner. And when I saw that, it was like jumping out of my chair, fist pump. Oh my God, I got to get this. I love that series. I remember seeing it for the first time back in the 80s while I was in college, it was being shown on our local public television station and probably because it was the 20th anniversary and all things 60s at that time in the 80s was in vogue again. You know, the music, television shows, the Avengers were back on television, the original Avengers. And I watched the whole series and I haven't seen it since, unfortunately. I haven't had a chance to go back and watch it again.
1: And it's a series that uh, one can look at more than once because it is so, uh, you know, it doesn't give up itself uh, lightly. It's Quite surreal, and there's lots of secrets in there. It's not something which once you've seen it once, you've got it.
0: Yeah, especially the ending.
1: Absolutely. If indeed it wasn't an ending, it was fun to be able to do a comic of it. What I'm not trying to do is doing another prisoner exactly like uh, they did in the 60s, because there's no point. Because uh, how they handled it in the 60s, what they did was so fantastic, and it was a, a particular kind of voice born from a particular kind of time. And I think it would have been like death to have just tried to. Ape it completely. Rather, I've tried to do a story that's more contemporary, dealing with hopefully more contemporary issues. Also, I was interested in um, interested in like the number six characters or the Maguire character. He was a secret agent, we presume. That's why he was dragged in. So I was quite interested in exploring, at least at the beginning, about my take on it, that side of things, the kind of the secret service side of things. I'm quite a fan of uh, John McCary and these kind of novels the spy who came in from the cold, fantastic spy novels. I don't know if you know them well. but um, Yeah, to try to explore that side of the prisoner for a bit before we get into too much uh, madness and surreal stuff.
0: Yeah, I guess it would be hard to kind of go back and do a 60s version of it, although a lot of those elements appealed to me about the show, but it may lose people who are not familiar with it. I think for younger audiences, they might not get that, and it would kind of lose them, and you don't have much time to get someone's attention anymore, be it TV or even comic books. That first issue has to grab someone, otherwise they move on, so a fresh take on it is a good idea, but you will work in, I would think, some of the elements of the Seaside Village. Yes,
1: without having to issue a spoiler, we will see the village, and we will see the rovers, you know, 100%. We'll know a bit more about some of the people who will eventually find themselves in that village, and the reason why they're there, or perhaps for slightly more clear reasons, uh, but things become very murky, and look, there will eventually be a lot of weirdness. There will eventually be a lot of civil stuff in there, but hopefully its slant is slightly different, its take is slightly different, but it is very much The
0: Prisoner. Is it going to address some of the themes that the original show addressed? For example, number six being a uh, case of individualism against the collectivism of number two and the village people there. The village people. <laughs> that sounded great. Yeah, that comes up,
1: but um, it's not central. I think perhaps more is the whole idea of identity who am I, was a key question uh, which was very relevant in the 60s. It was the generation who took drugs and said, "Okay, what am I? What what am I? I'm not my dad. I'm not this. Uh, So I think that those questions which the the prisoner asked were very relevant to the time in which it was, you know, the the context in which it was uh, born. And I think our context is slightly different. I think it's more about what do I believe in? What is worth anything? What is... This, so I think it's more about it's questioning, perhaps questioning not only yourself but questioning everything. Questioning why do you do something? Questioning what is this? What is freedom? What is peace? So this dark there it deals with some big questions for sure, but not exactly uh, the same questions that the uh, original prisoner uh, dealt with.
0: And your artist on the book is. Colin Lorimer, beautiful work from what I've seen of the sample pages, and he also has done storyboards for film, so for something that was a television show, I can't think of a better artist to have on the book. You always team up with good people.
1: I think, look, there's some stuff I haven't seen yet. Uh, what made the prisoner really interesting, visually, I think, was that juxtaposition of the ordinary with the extraordinary. Um, you know, he had this, what it looks like, this, a kind of a, a 50s holiday village in kind of like and this beach furniture and these blazers, you know, which is very kind of like ordinary in its own kind of way, but with a slight twist becomes extraordinary. So I like the fact that our artist um,
0: has a very good grip of the ordinary, which I think makes the extraordinary more extraordinary. And that book's coming out March, April. I should know. I didn't write it down.
1: I don't know. I, t- I kind of lose a of this stuff because I kind of get, um, I just do it and they tell me.
0: Well, I'm certainly looking forward to that. And it's timed with 50 years. It's the 50th anniversary of The Prisoner, which is, my God, so hard to believe. And they're also, they being um, Titan, is releasing a special edition. I know you're not connected with this, but perhaps you've seen this. The uh, Jack Kirby and Gil Kane, unpublished.
1: Yeah, you probably know more about that than I do, but I know of it.
0: It's a good wheeze,
1: you know. I mean, I think that's more about just a thing in and of itself rather than trying to uh push our book i think they're two different um aspects of the same homage to the prisoner
0: i have a uh, kirby collector magazine somewhere that published the pencil pages that kirby did of that unpublished comic book the prisoner and oh man what could have been i wish that had happened it's the idea
1: of kirby and the prisoner is just such a mad but brilliant uh
0: notion now will there be elements one could say Kafka esque takes in The Prisoner. Ish,
1: yes. But um, um, of course, I've just been writing a book, Kid Lobotomy, where the Kafka esque uh, side to things is very overt. Uh, so I'm not going to be overtly uh, quoting uh, Kafka in The Prisoner. It's less Kafka esque than the original one. In the original one, what makes it really Kafka esque is, or trial like, is the uh, number six doesn't know why he's there, it's like he doesn't know what he's guilty of. That is quintessentially uh, Kafkaesque. In this one, our character has a bit more clarity about why he's there, but then the reason he thought he was there turns out to be slightly more complicated and more muddy and more to do with um, what the themes of the story are. So, sure, but I think there are
0: Kafkaesque elements, but it's more buried. Now, I've heard that term used a lot, Kafka, Kafka esque.
1: People often use it very wrongly, and I think it should be used in specific occasions. As I said, when someone is being charged with something, is being tried for something, and they do not know what crime they've committed, that is the essence of what Kafka esque is.
0: Well, I heard it used so much, and there are very overt elements in kid lobotomy that we're going to talk about in a moment. And I was like, you know what? I need to find out what this is all about besides going to, say, Wikipedia and looking it up. So I actually got a copy of The Metamorphosis and read it so I could more fully appreciate what the heck it means when someone uses that term.
1: Can I just say uh, that metamorphosis, I think, is one of the
0: greatest short
1: stories of the 20th century. I think uh, metamorphosis is to the 20th century what Frankenstein and... Jekyll and Hyde is to the um, 19th century. Both of those are now seen as horror stories, but are actually much more. And I think that Metamorphosis is often viewed and seen as a horror story, but now you've read it, you know that it's much more. It's about, it's so kind of like connected with what was going on in the time. Man, it was kind of an existentialist howl of, what am I, what is it to be human? What is it to be inhuman? I mean, I think, I think it's just so fantastic. For a long time, I really, really had a a big thing for Kafka, which is one reason why I wanted to get as much of uh, that stuff into a
0: kid's Is the German helping read Kafka? Because I know that a lot of times when books are translated into English, something is missed. You cannot recapture the meaning and the rhythm of the original language. So have you read it in German now, and do you see it differently?
1: Kafka is really hard to read for a learner because he uses lots of... um, of uh, Alton Maldish's photo. Uh, they use lots of uh, words which are really not used anymore. So, but what I do do is I, I read it with the translation next to it so I can read and get the rhythm of it and then have a bit of help from the translation. Whether or not my German is good enough to kind of glean greater depths in it then from the translation, I hesitate to claim that much from my German, yeah. And come back next year, maybe I I'll be in that position. It's nice to be able to read the actual words that Kafka wrote, Uh, and perhaps you get slightly closer to the man, get slightly closer to, if you like, the alchemy of the moment of uh, creation.
0: Well, it's very overt in Kate Lobotomy, which is being published by IDW through the Black Crown imprint. And it's a very strange book. And it's a six-parter, so it looks like four issues have already come out. It's part of Shelley Bond's Black Crown imprint for creator-owned books through IDW. And the books are in the same neighborhood, but they're not crossing over. So they're in the same strange universe. And the books have a punk sensibility. Uh, And what does that mean to you, as far as those imprints, those titles under that imprint having a punk sensibility?
1: A punk
0: or post-punk
1: sensibility? I don't know. Is there a British sensibility? I don't know. I mean, because uh, a few of the uh, creators are British, and I think that um, the editor has a kind of imprint on that line, has some kind of influence on that line. Shelley Bond is married to Philip Bond, a British person. I think she's very an anglo file. I think one could say. I don't think she's very interested in this kind of sensibility. I guess the kind of books that she's wanted to go with are the ones which consciously or unconsciously fit in with uh, a kind of sensibility that uh, she's interested in. Maybe you could call that post-punk or new wave. Maybe there is a connection there. But what it means, I suppose, a certain acceptance of anarchy or a certain lusting after um, anarchy or a belief that um, anarchy can perhaps, or a kind of creative anarchy can get you to something which is interesting or truthful.
0: Now, people that go to the suites hotel that kid is in charge of, and his sister wants to be in charge of, or his father put him in charge of the hotel, uh, big daddy. Why would people want to stay at the suites? Cause it is a really bizarre place.
1: Well, you you know, I mean, I think you'd have to be a certain kind of person to want to stay at the suites. You probably have problems. And if you haven't got problems before you've stayed at the suites, you're probably going to have them once you have stayed at the suites. Is it a, a mental hospital? Is it another kind of hospital? Is it some kind of cathartic therapy for the, for the guests? I mean, people stay at hotels for all kinds of reasons, sometimes to stay over, sometimes to have affairs, sometimes to work. So I think that in the gamut of reasons why uh, one might stay at a hotel, one could say that uh, the Swedes is an outrider and it's, it's more unusual uh, stage or, or reason why one might stay at a hotel and I think that um, it tends to be the lost the lonely, the cracked the desperate, they're the other kind of ones that wash up uh, the suites hotel uh, I mean sometimes people seek it out because um, they are in such that they have heard that one can pursue certain radical therapies at the hotel, for example uh, Kid Lobotomy is not called Kid Lobotomy for nothing he uh, has been known to perform forms of lobotomy,
0: which can potentially help people with certain kinds of uh, life problems. Now, at the end of this arc, do you think at some point, on an irregular basis, since you have so many projects going on, that you'll return to kid lobotomy?
1: You know, I think uh, I have the stories there. I have the ideas there. I see no reason why we won't do that.
0: And if you did, would you focus on different characters? I mean, this one is very kid-centric. But would you pick someone else, perhaps like his sister, to focus on, or maybe a visitor to the Sweets?
1: I think all of those are possible. There's a central core of our uh, characters, which I see as a uh, kid. Then Otler. I mean, I'm really fond of Otler, the chambermaid, but who is actually much more than a chambermaid. And we will discover surprising uh, things about Otler in their final couple of episodes. Uh, Big Daddy and, and his relationship with Rosebud, his sister. So I think that I kind of feel as though they're probably the core of the story. But there is a kind of a, a universe around them of lesser planets who might come slightly more into focus, for sure.
0: And I do want to mention that the artist on the book is Tess Fowler. So if you went back to it, would you also want to work with Tess again? Would that be essential to the book? It all
1: depends on timing. You know, I mean, what Tess is doing, what I'm doing, when we can do it. And if it is both of our kind of schedules, then uh, I see no
0: reason why we couldn't do it, for sure. Now... A busy guy that you're already working on yet. Another title. One for Marvel Comics Legion. It's a six-part miniseries. Have you seen the television show that's been on FX? I have
1: to confess I didn't see all of it, but I saw a bunch of the first half of the series. I
0: thought it was good. I thought the first
1: episode particularly, a really good bit of uh, off-the-wall drama. I thought it really captured something of his uh, psychosis and of his uh, problem. I have to say I thought it was one of the better if not the best uh, TV adaptation of a comic book character.
0: Yeah, I was really impressed with it. I didn't know what to expect because I had not read much of the X-Men with Legion, although I have recently to get caught up. And uh, I just thought the television show... In some ways, since we talked about the prisoner, especially when David was stuck in the mental institution, it felt kind of like that, And especially how people had a certain way of dressing. Just to me, it did. It had a, that kind of vibe. Well, in some
1: ways, in some ways, uh, the village is kind of like a, a mental hospital, isn't it? One could make a kind of a, an argument that the whole thing, that number six is insane. And this whole thing is part of his delusion. Who am I? It could be he's lost his sense of uh, who he is, lost his sense of self, which I guess could happen because of a kind of mental illness. Uh, and so I have to say I didn't draw the comparison with uh, Legion and uh, The Prisoner, but I think it's an interesting take.
0: One little aside, and I'm going to be very clear about this because my wife gave me the uh, the business about it. Uh, in the show, is an actress, Aubrey Plaza, and there is a tenuous connection between my wife and Aubrey. Aubrey wouldn't know who she is now, probably, but back when they were younger, when they were kids, they both went to the 4-H club. It's a club for kids. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about it, but it's just kind of an activity. And they, Apparently, both of them went there, so she knew who she was. I doubt if Aubrey would know who my wife is now. So it's not like, my good friend Aubrey Plaza. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's kind of interesting. She's like, yeah, I know her. She used to live in Delaware, actually, where we are. So she's done quite well. And I'll tell you, she was amazing in that show. I thought she was one of the stars. Did you see the episode that turned into a musical?
1: I did. I thought it was fantastic. No, I thought whoever did it, behind it, kind of had a, I use this word sensibility quite a lot, because I think it's quite important or tone. They really got it and they stuck with it. They continued this sense of unease, which I think I really liked that I went through it.
0: You know, as insane as the Legion character is, and as wild as the book it is, because I think about back when Sienkiewicz would do the art on that, and that was very different at the time. That was really outside the mold of the kind of artists that Marvel had working on their books back in the, the 80s. So it's a testament to him to have that move forward and, uh, published because it was very different and on your series you have art by Wilfredo Torres which is a pretty stark comparison because it's a very clean line it's very different from what Sienkiewicz did with the character in terms of the look so it was a bold choice and I like it I really do because I like his work
1: for the same reasons that I was talking about um, the artist on the prisoner which are, well, I think when you're exploring extraordinary uh, vistas uh, and worlds and uh mental states, I think it's quite interesting to have a to have a character that can really nail down that the everyday. And I think it's quite interesting to have like a character that's really drawing the everyday and really kind of getting raw character and raw place, but twisting that a bit so it becomes mad. Think of it obviously a genius, it's fantastic, but it seems that everything he does is kind of like crazy and mad and pushed and, and broken up and deconstructive. But I quite liked the fact that this felt quite clean and felt almost like normal.
0: But all this abnormal stuff is happening. I think it helps the reader in many cases if you have a book that goes into the bizarre and the abnormal, but the art is not bizarre and abnormal. That way there's something to connect with to kind of get you to that point where you accept and can understand more of the bizarre and the abnormal. It doesn't like put you off right away because it's just too... Too different.
1: I think so. I think it's a kind of, uh, it's like a gateway into it. Also, it just gets a bit of humanity. Hopefully, it helps to get a little bit of humanity across. And and yeah, I think that otherwise, it's just a, a weird fest. And I think that that could be fun, but can get a bit uh wearisome after a while.
0: Yeah, and it's a very acquired taste. It might speak to a much smaller audience if it were approached that way, versus making it more accessible through the art. Now, you have um, a lot of books going on, and they're limited series. And you've done many of those as of late. You're going to be going back to uh, the Valiant series, Britannia, at some point? We have another one coming up. We
1: have the third in that kind of a... What I like about Britannia is it's it's kind of like an ongoing, but it's an ongoing as and when I have a story that I want to write about it. So uh, we did the first one, and people responded to that well. So we did another one because I had another idea, and they really liked that idea. And I've just written a third one. We're just doing some finishing touches too. And I quite like that it's kind of like a very stretched out ongoing as and when we want to do another one. I feel as though those characters are there. And after this third miniseries, which is only four episodes each, storyline, uh, after this third one, I feel as though there's every we would do a fourth one if I want to do another one, if I have the right idea, if they're still into it. So I quite like that
0: slightly loose arrangement. Well, it's sold very well for Valiant, and it's very different from their other books, too. So you don't have to read any other Valiant books, although I'm sure they want you to, but you don't have to to, to read Britannia.
1: No, I think that's what's quite attractive about Valiant, anyway. I think they make some bold uh, choices, and it's kind of like you know where they position themselves in the market or, or in the comic book uh, world. And I think it's quite interesting that the kind of characters they have and the kind of uh, stories they run. I think that... Quite a few of them are quite difficult to kind of exactly pinpoint. Is that a Valiant type of book? I think I'm not quite sure what a Valiant type of book is. And I think that's what makes them quite an interesting um,
0: company. And um, what we talked about earlier, The Mummy. Do you think you'll go back to that at some point and do another arc?
1: Well, you know, I'd quite like to. I mean, I, we did it. And then as we were finishing, I think that there were some changes at uh, Hammer. The part of Hammer, which which uh, dealt with the comics. I think there was a management buyout. So I think there are a lot of changes there. So I'm not quite sure what their position is there. I mean, the trick is always is how do you tell a, a mummy story that doesn't just go over the same old tropes that I have to say almost every single film does. The Brandon Fraser, that movie, uh, I guess mummy as Raiders of the Lost Ark, but kind of like, okay, you do it see that once, but you don't see it again and again. So I guess the trick with an, an archetype or one of those horror archetypes like the mummy is mummy is, how do you tell a story from a different angle that has this telling something different or exploring something different. And I think that our little story um, did. I think it had slightly more body shock uh, take on uh, the mummy. It tried to say something different about it. And I think uh, that's the only uh, reason for doing another one. Uh, If I have another idea, which is saying something different again about the mummy and is interesting enough to do and to read.
0: Well, I hope there is and I look forward to it. And I know that Hammer's still doing some work uh, with the comics because Captain Kronos just wrapped up uh, I think last month, So and I enjoyed that very much. So hopefully, you know, they're still going to be doing some. Most of the runs that you've worked on lately have been miniseries, and you used to do longer-form books, but as of late, miniseries. And does that work better for you, the miniseries? That's the way most books are published now anyway, is miniseries and arcs, but for you, with your variety of interests. It just
1: depends on what kind of character, what kind of story it is, and,
0: and the opportunities. But I think
1: in some ways, I do, when I think of an idea, I do tend to think in terms of finite stories. I do tend to think in terms of story and that story and character are indivisible. So in that way, it's quite interesting. It's quite an interesting way of working. It doesn't mean obviously it's less definite what you're going to be doing, but I quite like that as well. I mean, that's okay. You know, it keeps it fresh.
0: I have questions that I ask all my guests and I don't think I've ever asked you these questions before because I hadn't invented them yet (laughs) when we first spoke. I'm getting nervous. Oh no, they're easy. Uh, Most of them are. For you, they should be easy. So What do you like to do for rest and relaxation when you're not writing and learning German? Read,
1: mostly read, play guitar. Sometimes watch a bit of TV, but uh, not so much TV. Yeah, read and uh, play guitar, I guess. And have an occasional pint of uh, Guinness or Bitter in a pub. So what do you like to play? I play acoustic guitars. I really like, I've got a couple of really good uh, acoustic guitars, which are way better than I deserve to have, better than I am. But, you know, you reach a certain stage where you think, well, you know, I can now afford this, so I'm going to get it. So, uh, yeah, so I play a little bit of just guitar. I mean, sometimes finger-picking, sometimes playing around, sometimes some jazz on guitar, quite like a chord jazz arrangements. I had a guitar teacher who sadly died a couple of years ago, and we just went through old classic songs. Darn that dream. I know it's just, it sounds mad, but some of those uh, jazz chords are just so fantastic, and it's just so kind of a uh, – it's so much more complex than – uh. I don't know, like the kind of stuff you might play in a, in a punk record or the average uh, rock song, which I, essentially you can hear it once and essentially know what it is and be playing it five minutes later. Which probably uh, jazz songs, they have so many sevenths and minor chords and minor sevenths, and it's much more of a, a complex uh, commitment. I do a bit of that stuff. That comes and goes, you know, and sometimes I just pick up the guitar and toodle around for half an hour, you know, nothing particular. So, yeah, so I guess music and reading
0: how long have you been uh, playing guitar i mean for a few years
1: when i was a kid when I was a teenager i played drums in a band then i kind of noticed that uh, i was getting sweaty and kind of right, it was hard work the guitarists and the singer were looking quite cool and standing up front <laughs> and and the girls were looking at them you know so i i shifted <laughs> so i shifted my mediocrity from drums to guitar and i was fairly mediocre but i could play drum within guitar okay and i could sing a bit and uh well, what I can sing a bit is a mood point. When I had my guitar teacher, I sang a couple of songs for him, and uh, I asked him, "So, uh, Nick, what do you think of my uh, voice? Be honest." He says, "Well, it's interesting." Oh, yeah. <laughs> remember, remember, I was paying him. <laughs> The best thing to come up with is was interesting, so I think we can safely see it. it's pretty shit. You know.
0: Now you talked about reading, and uh, I try to get some reading done too. I mean, obviously, I have these piles of comics I have to read, and I want to read. That's fine. You know, I put ones on my list I want to read, and I've been trying to do more reading. And you know, like I mentioned earlier, to learn more about Kafka, I read *Metamorphosis*, and I know that uh, Dynamite has a James Bond graphic novel coming out, *Casino Royale*. And not based on the movies, so I picked up a copy of Casino Royale from eBay, an old copy, and read it because I wanted to read the original. And this is not like the kind of Bond in the movies. This is very different. This is set back in the 50s. So, for the
1: Fleming novels?
0: Yes. It's quite different, isn't it? Oh, very different, yes. I'm starting to read about halfway through Live and Let Die, and I'm like, <gasps> wow, look at the language in this. I mean, this is this would not fly today, and this is <laughs> very different. From... In, fact, in what way do you think it's different? It's darker, more twisted? It is. It is darker. Casino Royale, for example, uh, the, the injuries that Bond sustains, that's in the movie uh, that came out a few years back. That's a big part of the book, and I kind of wondered, you know, why didn't they start with Casino Royale, before I read the book, why didn't they start with that one as the first Bond movie with Sean Connery? Why did they start with something else? Like, I think it was Dr. No. And then when I read what happened in the book to Bond, the injuries that he sustained to his nether regions, I was like, oh, I guess they couldn't go there. That would have been too much for audiences. I haven't read it. I do know that there was
1: something slightly um, dark and twisted about Fleming. And sometimes I think, I think if you deconstruct his uh, novels, perhaps you can see into his private life a little bit.
0: Yeah, at first I took it when I read Casino Royale as this is the Bond character speaking. This isn't Fleming speaking. And then as I read the next book, I was like, okay, this is some of Fleming speaking. This is some of his take on the culture because in Live and Let Die, the way the African-American people speak is very very outdated. It's very stereotypical of the time. Don't say it, racist. Yes.
1: He was quite right-wing product of the british uh, establishment and so you know back in the 50s he's not going to be some kind of pan-african supporting bleeding high liberal with i think some probably oppressed or suppressed or not so suppressed dark sexuality or perhaps say domesticism uh, homosexuality which is fine but uh, i think if it gets suppressed i think it can come out in other ways
0: yeah but i do enjoy reading the
1: books i think that sometimes All the things I've just listed can make for good uh, writing because that stuff gets suppressed. It has to come out in a way. And I think it's sometimes found its way into novels, which make them uh, not
0: bland. this is a question I ask all my guests, and this might be the more difficult one. If you were stuck on a deserted island and you only had one book, which book would you want to have with you? Ulysses. Well, that wasn't hard for you. <laughs> that was pretty quick. And why? I
1: mean, I've read it a few times, but uh, you could always read it again. And you still struggle with certain uh, chapters to really get to what i said. said. The language is so rich. The characters are so vibrant. And there is just so much there.
0: And we already talked about your beverage of choice because you do like a pint. And would that be uh, Guinness or? It depends what pub it's in.
1: Uh, I do Guinness if it's in a pub where I think... I see that other people are drinking it, or that they serve a bit with Guinness. Uh, if it's not run out well, so in Irish pubs they tend to taste nice because a lot is served. But yeah, so sometimes Guinness, or sometimes what we in Britain call bitter, which is kind of a darker kind of a uh, uh, ale, you don't quite get it uh, in America. But it's like it's not lager, so it's not the light fizzy sweet stuff. It's the darker, warmer, more uh, substantial kind of uh, stuff. Does Boddington's make it better? Yeah, it's a bit, yeah. It's a bit frothy for my liking. But, um, okay. But yeah, but it's but yeah, that, that, that counts. as a bit, yeah.
0: When I go out to the pubs, I'll do some of my writing there uh, just to kind of get the ideas flowing. It always amazes me. And you know, people can get whatever they want. But when I go to a, a nice pub with microbrews and I, I'll try something different, I'll, I'll always see some people sitting there saying, I'll, I'll have a Coors Light. I'll have a Bud Light. I'm like, why are you here?
1: Kind of don't interest me. I find them so sort of sweet. And it's insubstantial. There are some interesting uh, microbreweries. And Adams, I think, do quite a nice darker beer. But that's not a microbrewery, is it?
0: Oh, well, yeah. I mean, they, the microbrews they make darker beers. They make bitters. They make IPAs. They make lagers. They make all kinds.
1: Yeah, IPA can be nice. I mean, we shouldn't talk about
0: beer too much because it makes it sound as though I've got obsessed by it. Oh.
1: No. <laughs> it doesn't take a big part <laughs> of my life. Uh, when it's in front of me, it's an important part of my life. But um, when it's not, I'm not thinking about it.
0: I have one more question for you. Uh, this is your second time on the show. I don't know what the etiquette is. What do you think is a reasonable amount of time before a guest is back on a show? Like I would think, in my opinion, maybe a year or so, so there's, you know, some time has passed and some projects have gone down the line and we can talk about different things. I mean, what do you think, since you have to deal with the media a lot and people ask you questions, what do you think's a good period of time?
1: Well, obviously, one, it depends on how much new stuff that guy is that or that woman is uh is producing or has produced? So you have more stuff to talk about in terms of etiquette. Look, I think after a year, a polite request or nudge, I think that's completely uh, valid.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I figured. I just I just wanted to check. I wouldn't want an audience to hear the same person like every month. <laughs> And I'm sure that person doesn't have much time to do that anyway.
1: (laughs) No, but I I think a year is cool. As I say, if that person has some new stuff or
0: some new stuff to talk
1: about, that sounds like quite a good outro, doesn't it? Or or a near outro.
0: (laughs) Well, I did ask, so that's that's fine. Oh, last question. If they made an action figure of you, Mm -hmm. what would be your accessory? Oh, yeah. Uh, I've been asked many questions in my life. Would I need an accessory? Maybe you wouldn't. What counts as an accessory? It could be anything. I mean, some people have said it's my computer. So
1: I okay, guess so I like to have a notebook on my a notebook and pen. They count as two. I think they're kind of be indivisible, aren't they?
0: So I, th- I think uh,
1: when I go out, I like to have a little notebook with me in case uh, in case the muse uh, grabs me.
0: Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, I always carry one with me, too, just in case something strikes me and I want to write down some ideas while they're fresh in my head. Because something will knock it out, and I'll be like, oh. God, what was that idea I had? Jeez. <laughs> yeah, really. Do you have any conventions planned to attend stateside?
1: Not stateside, but my next, my next convention is beginning of March in uh in, in Scotland. This is a small convention by uh, the Law Shop of Horrors. I'm quite looking forward to that.
0: But uh, in the States, I've got nothing planned at the moment, but that could change. You
1: know, It does change.
0: Uh, I know you've been to New York Comic Con, I believe. Last year, isn't it? I'm a little intimidated by that. How was it last year? I heard it was insane.
1: Yeah. I think Insane is completely right. It was a fucking lot of people. And obviously, you know, in the Javits Center, or the Javits Center, uh, and it, which is big, and there's just a lot of people. I mean, it was fun. I mean, look, I, li- I like going to New York, because uh, you get to see a lot of people who uh, you like, and who you kind of catch up with. So all that stuff's great. I thought the Artist Alley was fantastic. It was pretty well organized, I think. But when you first get into that uh, big building, on the first uh, morning, because my first signing shift uh, for KidDepotomy was kind of an early one and so people queuing up to get in you kind of think I don't want anything to do with this there were just so many people I mean luckily we managed to sneak in some kind of a back way you know some kind of professionals way but uh, it was just so crowded which is obviously I guess the idea they wanted to be as crowded as possible it was insane but no more insane than expected to be.
0: And they'll keep getting more insane as more and more people get into comics and going to conventions as it becomes more and more mainstream. Because, frankly, it already is. I mean, thanks to the movies especially, it's more mainstream. So at some point, I guess there'll have to be some kind of adjustments or modifications made to how conventions are run, the ones that are really big anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean, in some ways I miss that it's slightly less counterculture than it used to be. It's not just weirdos and strange people on the kind of like the, the outer limits of our, our culture. There are a lot of people that just like movies come along or just just like Marvel films or, or this film. I mean, I, I find that less interesting. I find that a less interesting aspect of uh, conventions. But look, what can you do? You can't hold back
0: time. No. Peter, it's been great catching up with you. It's been too long, but we'll catch up again another year or so. And thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. It's been great, and uh, I look forward to uh, the next time. Always a pleasure talking to Peter Milligan. He's a really smart guy, well-read, and I learned a lot just talking to him, so it's a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it too. Coming up next week, Stephanie Cannon. Stephanie's an up-and-coming writer. She is working on several books at the moment. Her most recent work includes a contribution to a comic book anthology, a comic anthology of body ailments that was successfully funded through a Kickstarter campaign. And it includes works by former guests Chris Sabella, Ram V, Erica Schultz. So I'm really looking forward to reading that when I get a copy of it. But Stephanie first popped up on my radar when I read that she was a finalist in the Ghost City competition in 2017. She did a one-page story called Boot Hill with incredible art by Yavi Lapara. And she has a comic book coming out called Bandera with art by David Mims, who is doing the art on Scrimshaw through Alterna Comics. And she's planning another story with Francesco La Quinta. So everyone she's working with, the artists, are fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to seeing more of her work, and we're going to talk about that work and about her in my next episode. Please join us. Thank you for joining me for Creator Talks this week. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and also on Amazon Echo and Dot devices. Just say, Alexa, play podcast Creator Talks to hear the latest episode. In addition, you can listen to the show and follow it through Podbean. Your feedback is greatly appreciated, so please rate and review on iTunes if you like the show or an episode that you heard. Your ratings and reviews go a long way to helping the show, and I can't thank you enough for taking a bit of time to do that for your convenience in the show notes of each podcast i have a link to my itunes page where you can rate and review the show and see the entire list of shows available if you haven't heard them all take a look through there are living legends and up and coming comic creators tell family and friends who like comics and comic book creators about the show and to subscribe the content is free just as valued are your comments and feedback. You can reach me through Facebook and Twitter at CreatorTalksPod. That's at CreatorTalksPod. You can also reach out to me by email. You can find that at my website, CreatorTalks.com. At the website, you will also find blog posts, reviews of books that I have read that you might want to read too, my catalog of podcasts and videos and other written articles on the website, CreatorTalks.com. A hearty thank you to all my guests, It is an honor and a privilege for you to make time to be on the show and talk to me about your work. It is your knowledge and insight into the creative process that makes the show so unique. My thanks also goes out to my family who makes this show possible, especially my executive co-producer, Mrs. Calloway. I'll be back each and every Thursday with a new interview. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.